Today, we are joined by Bryn McNulty, the co-founder and CEO of Hobby, and the first and only female founder and CEO of a Latin American unicorn. Prior to co-founding Hobby, she served as vice president of global strategy at Selena, and prior to that was a consultant at McKinsey. Having started her career in real estate investing at Goldman Sachs, Bryn received an MBA as a Baker Scholar from HBS and a Bachelor in Science from the Wharton School with dual concentrations in real estate and finance. Outside of Javi, Bryn serves on the steering committee of the Aspen Institute Initiative for Colombia and as a director at the McNulty Foundation, where she supports other entrepreneurs around the world to develop impactful businesses. Bryn, we are very excited to have you on the podcast and have some Latin America representation here. Where are you calling us from? Thank you so much for having me. It's fun to be reconnected with Wharton. I am calling in today from Miami. Bryn, can you walk us through your career prior to Javi? How did you end up starting a company in Colombia? Sure. So I started my interest in real estate and my love of real estate really while at Wharton undergrad. I was initially a finance concentration, as I felt that one should be at that school, and was taking a class in international housing finance systems or kind of mortgage systems around the world. And in some of the cases that we took, we saw examples of property ownership rights being established for communities that formerly were squatting on land and the transformation that individuals, families, and the community as a whole went through when property ownership rights were established, taxes began to be paid, roads were built, sewage systems were constructed, schools were being funded, and how powerful that could be. And that was kind of a light went off in my head saying, how cool is this? This is a way to apply what I've been learning in finance to, in some ways, change the world. So then I did the entire real estate concentration my second year, in addition to finishing out finance. And started at Goldman Sachs, where I'd been hired on the trading floor and was actually able to move into a real estate investing group within my first year there. So I could understand the fundamentals of what it meant to work in the real estate industry. I was there for about four years before applying to go to business school, actually left before I was accepted because I wanted to force myself to try something new and was at a prop tech based in New York. And then the summer between my two years worked at a prop desk based in San Francisco and that was with the theory that I felt real estate was one of the few industries which was still extremely antiquated and hadn't been affected by technology the way that other parts of our lives had already been so changed. The second internship that I did actually was with a online mortgage originator. Huge piece of that business, in addition to obviously bringing the origination process online, was educating consumers in the financial product that they were signing up for. And after the financial crisis, that was something that was kind of unusual and really meaningful so that people understood the instrument that they were tying themselves to and the risks that they were taking on and really empowering the consumer. And that was something that stuck with me for later in the way in which we decided to do things at Hobby. But between that internship and Hobby, I graduated from HBS. I moved to Bogota, joined McKinsey, a consulting company that you're probably familiar with. And after about a year, I wanted to get back either into operator investing, joined a different real estate related startup in the hotel space. And when I arrived in Colombia, I had a really hard time finding a place to live or even before we arrived. It was difficult even working with a broker to get a sense of what existed in the market. You couldn't get anything beyond iPhone photos. And then fast forward to 2020 when I sold an apartment 
it was sold with iPhone photos. So it's not as though between 2016 when I arrived and 2020 when I most recently sold a home, it had advanced that much. But you couldn't get really any accurate information. You would maybe, maybe get floor plans on a used home, i.e. not new construction and some iPhone photos, and that was it. And I was shocked by the state of the market, and that just stuck with me. So when I was watching the advancements of different prop techs addressing convenience problems in markets like the United States, and I saw like the fundamental issues that were being faced by consumers in the Latin American markets like Colombia, I was really excited about the opportunity to address those. And I knew my co-founder for a very long time. We've known each other for about a decade. I was pretty sure he was going to start another business. He's a former entrepreneur and has a very complimentary skill set and background to me. And we noodled on what we could do in the residential space and launched Hobby in fall of 2019. Yeah, super cool. Could you talk a little bit more about like how you came up with the idea? You said you noodled with your co-founder. Talk us through that process a little bit. Sure. So for context, the residential real estate market there is pretty broken. And what do I mean by that? Just the processes and institutional support that we're so used to in markets like the United States just don't exist there. There's a fundamental lack of data and information at every level. Even the government doesn't have access to reliable real-time information, especially again in the used home space. There's a lack of trust and there's a lack of access to liquidity. And those things make the process of buying and selling a home the equivalent of if in the United States you wanted to buy a used car and you found someone on Craigslist who said they were selling a home and you met that person in a parking lot of a supermarket and paid them cash and you didn't have even a Kelly Blue Book to get an estimate of what that car might be worth. You just kind of had to ask for some friends and try to guesstimate what it would be like. That's the best comp I have for the status quo of transacting there. So when we were like, this is really bad, how do we make it better? We were met with the blessing and the curse of, hey, actually, if we can understand market prices and build out a database of home values and normal times on market and other trends and an effective pricing model, we can really be at the center of the ecosystem and we can change the way that all these stakeholders interact with one another. How cool is that? On the other hand, you can't just come in and have a single solution or a single product and expect to plug into an otherwise functioning market. So you have to really build everything from scratch. And we then got a sense of what our ultimate goal was, which is to build the infrastructure to support a functioning residential market based in data and an understanding of home prices with the mission of empowering Latin Americans the most important financial decisions of their lives. But knowing that that's the long-term goal to really build out this infrastructure, where do we start? And we ultimately decided to start in the iBuying space as our first product, iBuying being where we buy homes on our own balance sheet, renovate them very lightly and sell them. And we did that for a couple of reasons. Some people thought we were crazy, by the way, because it's obviously the most operationally complex and financial and capital intensive of the products that we would eventually launch. But we felt that one, it allowed us to change habits. When you enter a place where things are really informal and there is this huge lack of trust, getting people to change the way in which they've done things can be really hard unless you can actually solve the problem. So we thought if we own the asset, we own the customer experience on both sides, we can build trust and we can change the way that buyers and sellers and brokers and people think about the potential of what a transaction experience could be. 
And two, we knew that data needed to be the foundation of the company. And if we started with a product that forced us to basically live and die by our accuracy and home prices, because the proof is in the pudding, you make money or you don't on every transaction, that would instill into company DNA an obsession around data and accuracy. So we started in iBuying, and now we have a full suite of products across the transaction space where we have on balance sheet transactions or iBuying, where we act as an intermediary in brokerage. We have mortgage originations, we have listings, and we have free evaluations. We started the company in Bogota, in Colombia, and we now operate across seven cities in Colombia, three main cities in Mexico. We're the largest buyer and seller of used homes in each market by an order of magnitude. And we're the largest independent mortgage originator in Colombia. Brilliant. That's impressive growth for Javi. We've been following the growth and the internationalization into, into Mexico. And sometimes some founders in Latin America tell us that it is or can be difficult to jump from one country to another because regulatory environments might be different. Did you encounter some of those challenges when going into Colombia? And more broadly, what were some of the initial challenges you found out when you were building Javi with your co-founder? Mm -hmm. So residential real estate is by nature a local business. Every neighborhood operates different. Every city operates differently. And of course, country to country has differences across, as you said, regulation, culture, the ways in which brokers are compensated, etc. We had already gone through the learning process by the time we launched Mexico of having opened in a number of cities in Colombia. So we did understand how do we adapt this model and replicate it in a different city that might have different topography, different types of residential construction and things of that nature. And then there's kind of a one-time fixed cost of understanding the regulation differences and the paperwork and filing differences, registration, et cetera, in a different country. What I do think is relevant is a lot of people from the United States, whether they would say it or not, think of Latin America as one place or more similar to the United States than to the United States versus Canada versus England versus Mexico. Just because the countries are adjacent to one another, they are not the same. So there is a difference between Colombia and Mexico. There are the ways in which the team works together internally is different. The hours that the people tend to work are different. The way in which they communicate is different. There are things about opening, managing, and building a team in a country that you have to adapt to. And the ways in which you communicate with the consumer, you have to adapt. All of that being understood, Colombia and Mexico are relatively similar, and the pain points felt by the consumers and felt by the ecosystem that we were trying to address were actually really, really similar. There was a very like lack of information, lack of trust, and lack of access to liquidity or mortgages in the used home space. The banking system, while bigger and potentially more sophisticated in Mexico than in Colombia, had a lot of the similar dynamics around the way in which there were a concentrated few number of banks who issued the majority of mortgages, things like that, that made the adaptation of the model not so, so difficult as it would have been to other countries within Latin America. And you will see a lot of companies from Colombia and sometimes Colombia and or Peru, second market often is Mexico because they are the most culturally similar, very similar socioeconomic dynamics 
And that allows for startups to navigate between that triangle somewhat easily on a relative basis. Yeah, that's true. I've seen also companies in, in Peru, in my country, go to Mexico. And yeah, it's a similar country. It's also one of the most open Latin American countries for startups. And it's a big market too. So there are some exactly it's big. There are some positives to go to Mexico for sure. I want to switch gears a little bit and take you to, you know, the idea of Javi. And how did you chose your co-founder and how did you build your initial team for Javi? I would say less that I chose my co-founder. It wasn't as though I was going to start Hobby and it was a question of like, who started Hobby with me? I have like a list of 10 people and I can't wait to interview them. It was more, I recognized that there was this desperate like need for improvement in the residential market. And there was this guy that I'd known for a really long time and who was a great friend who was a very well-respected and successful entrepreneur in the market and understood really well operationally complex businesses and financial services. And I knew that he was going to start another business at some point. So I was like, hey, I'm sure you're going to start another business. I would love to do something in residential. You want to do something with me? Like, what do you think? It's not, I was not always intending to be an entrepreneur. I was not going to go about this path on my own. I would have never started a business in Colombia without someone else who's much better than I am at everything. It was more, I knew Sebastian and I knew there was this huge issue. And luckily he agreed to start the business with me. And when you two got together and started thinking about the idea, what were the first hires and what skills were you looking in them? So we hired someone in accounting who was phenomenalist. Everyone who I'll tell you is still with the company, so I don't have to say it each time. In her, we wanted, obviously, an understanding of financial accounting, but also someone who we deeply trusted and who would take on a lot more responsibility in the setting up of the first kind of administrative pieces of the company. We hired a VP of engineering who had had a very successful career and was actually being recruited by Scotiabank Patria to go to Canada. This is my son whose third birthday it is. And then we hired, oh my God, I forgot our first hire. Our first hire was like a guy called Joel, who also is still with the company. I really just, one of those like problem solver can be put into any type of position and figure out what needs to be done and execute on it. He also is a deep believer in the mission of the company. And he has probably had six different roles since he started and just helped us identify what needed to be done next. Those three, plus we had an early hire in marketing who, again, we knew for a long time and really trusted and could help us get off the ground and communicating with potential clients, understanding the market, understanding the way in which we wanted to engage with the first products that we were going to launch. It depends how early you want to talk about like the founding team, because we started hiring pretty quickly after that. But what we looked for was ideally personal experience, having worked with an individual or once removed great references. Sebastian had started businesses and operated in the market for a while. So a lot of the people that we brought on at the beginning, he had directly worked with in the past. Otherwise, through his network, we wanted genuinely good people 
one of the really cool things about starting a company is that you don't have to deal with jerks and you can make sure that everyone who comes in is actually like a nice human being. And then lastly, people who were deeply committed to the mission of the company, which again is to empower middle-class Latin Americans in the most significant financial decisions of their lives. Why does that matter? Because building a company is really hard and there's a lot of ups and downs and there's a lot of shifts in focus. And you need to make sure that everyone understands the long-term mission so that they can make decisions that are in the best interest of the company. That's kind of a quick answer of some of the first people that we brought onto the team. Thank you for sharing those first hires. I think those are the people you spend so much time with that it's important that you feel like you can work with them. And like you mentioned, right? People that you can connect, good people that you can trust. Yeah. That's really important for the initial team. And I think that's not just the initial team. That's something that we've tried to maintain through to today. And a huge piece for us in performance assessment and the way in which we compensate people is related to how they conduct themselves, their adherence to company values. Things like that really, really matter. I agree. What's next for Javi? Like, what are the areas where you see more growth for the company? I don't know if you're thinking this in terms of like some of the products that the company launched or maybe some mm -hmm. new markets. How are you looking at growth at this point in time? So we are very lucky to be operating in two large markets. And even though we've had significant growth, we grew over 25 times in 2021. We grew almost six times in 2022. And we're continuing to grow rapidly in both Mexico and Colombia because residential real estate is a huge asset class, $2 trillion of asset value in Spanish-speaking Latin alone. We're focused on continuing to build out the suite of products and services. So as I said, we started with iBuying, and then we now have a handful of other products and services that we offer and interact closely with brokers, with banks, with the government. And we want to make sure that those pieces of the infrastructure construction continue to get a lot of focus and care and to deepen our penetration in the two countries in which we operate. We're not in a rush to expand geographically at this point in time. There's a lot to do in Colombia and Mexico and their significant markets. So we want to make sure that we're offering all of the products in the best way that we can and the consumer experience continues to improve. And we talked a little bit about how the LATAM region is not by any means homogenous. Can you talk a little bit more about the particularities of maybe Mexico and Colombia where you operate as an American that moved there for work? So first of all, I have felt incredible, like welcoming energy from both countries and from the people that I've worked with in every setting, whether it's with alliances or with people who work at Hobby or with kind of, you name it, I've had a wonderful experience as a foreigner. Of course, there are differences and the language is different, the cultures are different. And as I said, between the two cultures, two countries, the cultures are different. And it's even little logistical things. I mentioned this the other day, but in Colombia, sometimes, not sometimes, frequently, people will have meetings in the office at 7 a.m., which as an American, was staggering. That is so early. And then in Mexico, people often will come into the office after 9 a.m. or even later. They have lunch at like 3 p.m. So those things kind of sound funny, but if you're trying to organize a team that has people based in two different countries who are used to operating on different timeframes, you have to figure out how to manage that. So I think there are small things that are different in 
meaning, not always small in terms of logistical coordination. And like everything else we do, you just have to adapt to where you are and realize that things are local. Yeah, 7 a.m. meeting sounds brutal. I know, in the office, presidential. And 3 p.m. lunch sounds hard too. I know, <laughs> I get really hungry at like 12.30. Yeah. And then going into maybe the real estate industry or the prop tech industry, how would you say Latin America compares to the U.S. in terms of like the trends you're seeing in prop tech in Latam? Do you think it's like following some of the lead that the U.S. and other developed countries are having? Or you think that solutions built for Latin America are focusing more in the region? From my perspective, the markets are really not that comparable because of things like the MLS or the multiple listing service in the United States where everyone understands what's for sale and at what price. And sites like Zillow can tell you the price at which every home transacted and on what date. That availability of information coupled with how relatively easy it is for someone to get a mortgage and a mortgage from a number of different financial institutions as an option to pick from, because all those financial institutions understand the value of the collateral, those two things make comparing the markets so difficult because they really function in a completely different way. The opacity with which people try to make decisions in markets like ours is staggering. And it's something that results in the solutions that we are developing being true fundamental need solving solutions. I would say that some of the solutions that you see in markets like the United States being more convenience solutions and nice to have. And that to me is the biggest difference between what prop techs are doing in the two countries. So Brian, you've had a very successful career, both in established companies and entrepreneurial ventures. For some of our more entrepreneurial listeners, do you have any advice for those who are looking to start a startup or any mistakes you wish, if any, you could have avoided in the process? You know, honestly, it's hard because I can't relate to people who just want to start a company because I started it again because I felt that I had to because the opportunity was staggering. But I mean, of course, there's a million things that if I could go back and relive it, I would do better and I would suffer less in the decision making process as I did. If you're going to be fundraising, I think you have to get really comfortable with people telling you no and feeling like embarrassed and silly and not allowing that to ruin your day or your week or your belief in what you're trying to do. That said, if somebody gives you a piece of feedback, consider taking into account. If 10 people give you the same piece of feedback, it's probably right. And I'm not saying like blindly believe in what you're doing at all costs and not adjust because people are generally pretty smart. Everyone's biased by their own experience. Everyone's biased by whatever it might be in their life. But you have to learn how to appropriately weigh discount or take into account the advice or feedback that people give you. Those are kind of the two things I would say. Get used to being told no and feeling dumb. Yeah, makes sense. Maybe on to happier topic. We'd love to now pivot and ask you a couple of rapid fire style questions. When you interview someone for a role at Hobby, what are some of the things you are looking for? I really like to understand what makes people happy. 
Like what it is that they do in their lives that brings them joy? What are the ways in which they like to apply themselves? What do they think of as success? There's a number of different ways in which I try to get at that end solution or end kind of discovery. But that for me is really, really important because then you can understand what will ultimately motivate this person and what will allow you to help manage them to achieve the most of their potential. And then I look for someone who is really independent and wants to find a way to bring solutions that the company needs. One of the values that we have at the company is I am a master key, which, or llave maestra, the idea being which you as an employee of Hobby should feel really empowered to solve problems and to be able to make decisions in the best interest of the company. It is our duty to provide you with the resources and the context to act as a master key. And by the way, the training and the ability to grow, et cetera. But we're not looking for people who come and want to follow a set of instructions and do the same thing every day. And there are a lot of very quote unquote smart, quote unquote successful people from well-known and well-respected companies who have come to hobby and just been used to being in a more execution style role. And it's not a fit because we expect them to step up and define what their role might be. So that's something I think we've gotten better at understanding over time. I like the concept of the Llave Maestra to solve all kinds of issues. Do you have any hidden talents? I have a talent of having three children, I would say. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a talent, talent. Sure. and not going completely <laughs> insane. Because I have a four and a half year old, today a three year old, who's the one that popped in asking if he could open his sorpresas, and a 10 month old, which isn't so hidden because everyone who works with me is well aware of my children because they're crawling on me at different hours of the day. But besides hobby, that's pretty much the only thing that I have time to do. Multitasking is an art. What's the best career advice that you have received? This is not really related to hobby, but I think. The best advice that I got, which is definitely not really related to hobby, was no one cares as much about your success as you do. And I think when I was first starting out, I really expected my manager or my like assigned mentor or someone else to tell me what I should be doing and look out for me and proactively do things to help me in my life and my advancement of what I wanted to do. The reality is everyone's really busy and they may have the best intentions and they may be willing to help you. But they're not going to spend their day thinking like, how can I make sure that Bryn gets the most of her second year analyst job at Goldman? You have to ask for help and specifically give them examples of things that would be useful for you. And also you have to stay in touch and you have to really be the one to control the narrative in that sense. And then the final fun Q&A question is, what's your favorite place in Colombia? <laughs> so I'll give two answers probably. One is in Bogota. I don't even have a name for it because it wasn't an official trail, but there was a small path that I would hike behind my apartment building every single Saturday. I would take the elevator down and walk along the road and walk up the mountain. That was truly incredible and this really special experience that I think very few places have in the world where you can be in a city of about 10 million people, including the surrounding MSAs, and also be able to go hiking without getting into a car. And then in addition to that, the beaches of Cartagena are really special. But I go to those beaches, hopefully soon. Yeah, they're the best. Brian, it's our final question to you. And this is a serious question. Can we have your boldest, most unique prediction in the prop tech space 
or otherwise that you believe will happen in the next five to 10 years? I'm really not one of those people who has like a little catchy tagline of what I believe because like everything in life, I think it depends and there's nuances. Do I believe that the way in which we transact on real estate will fundamentally change and be streamlined such that it is more like buying a used car? Absolutely. Do I think that it will be exactly like buying a used car? No, because there are so many unique aspects of residential real estate versus cars, which are manufactured and there's like 10,000 of them that are spit out and look exactly the same and were built in the same year. But do I think that our understanding of market prices and being able to streamline the ways in which information is shared and players in the ecosystem can communicate will make it such that it is not a right now almost multi-year process to buy and sell a home, but it can be a tiny, tiny fraction of that with a lot less pain, headache, and doubt for sure. It's not really a bold prediction. I mean, I think we all see the writing on the walls and that that should be happening. I think it's harder than it seems to just snap your fingers and have it change. Maybe the one prediction I will say is I actually believe that markets like Colombia and Mexico and other developing markets where you have players like Hobby using data and technology to try to address some of these problems have the opportunity to leapfrog markets like the United States that have interim solutions and interim processes that are now so deeply integrated in the way in which people interact that we may be able to become much more kind of tech forward and efficient than markets like the US who had that interim solution. I feel like we saw something in fintech in this where like the US yeah. is stuck on credit cards, but take a market like China, for example, they leapt straight from credit cards to mobile payments, even though the US mm -hmm. is- yeah. Same thing, exactly. Rin, thank you very much for your time. It was great talking to you, getting to know Javi and learning more about the space. It's very exciting what is going on in Latin America in the startup space. So we are very excited to continue to see what's next for Javi and, and the ecosystem overall. Thank you. Enjoy your time at Wharton, guys. It goes fast. Thank you. Thank you.